Welcome to Dear World, a podcast and radio show hosted by Opal, an organization committed to building collective power and AAPI feminist leadership in Ohio. In each episode, we bring together Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander women and non-binary trans folks to share their exuberant, messy, complicated, and real stories about living in the intersections of culture, gender, sexuality, geography, time, class, and experience. Every episode will bring forth a different theme where AAPI and other BIPOC women and non-binary trans folks from all over the U.S. will share their stories, unfiltered and raw. We ask them, if they had a chance to share their story with the world, what would they say? Many of you may be tuning in from what's now known as the state of Ohio, um, and we want to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territory of hundreds of different indigenous tribes and nations, including the Wyandot, the Mingo, the Shawnee, Delaware, Miami, Huron, Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Odawa. Indigenous people are still here. And an acknowledgement is just the first step of repairing the broken relationships caused by genocide, broader oppression, and unrecognized sovereignty. And if you want to find out more about the traditional territory where you are, you can visit native-land.ca. Now, I'm your co-host, Tessa Schwan. I use she and they pronouns, and I'm a connector, facilitator, and organizer based in Cleveland. I'm currently one of the co-directors of OPAL, and I'm so excited to co-host our first podcast. And I'm also your co-host, Belle Breed. I'm an educator, activist, and organizational psychologist, and now a podcast host. Thank you for joining us. So, Belle Breed, can you please share the story of how Dear World came to be? Yeah. So, Dear World began as an in-person storytelling event that was hosted in Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, And we really sought to bring together AAPI women and non-binary folks um, and just share the silly, messy stories that made us us. Um, And having done that, it sparked so many wonderful conversations about spirituality, about the holidays, the way that our families approach food. And really, it it was the beginning of creating a community um, between people that were so separated in a, in a city like Cincinnati and bringing them together for the first time. So we did that in 2019, but come 2020, the pandemic hit and it was during our planning for our third Dear World um, event around uh, spring beauties and, and how beauty standards affect the AAPI community. And we noticed that there was a lack of just being together with people because um, we couldn't do that in a pandemic. And so. The Dear World podcast came out of this question of how can we bring Dear World into the virtual space? How can we still share stories of AAPI women and non-binary folks when we could no longer be together uh, physically? So here we are. And I'm so excited. Like making a podcast has been on my bucket list for a while. So this is just the the perfect time to do it. Um, I want to give a shout out to Tahara Kanam, who's one of our our leaders in Cincinnati, who I know worked with you mm-hmm. um, and V Chow so hard back back in the day yes. to to bring those in person events to life. Yeah, yeah. And so, as we're getting ready for our first ever podcast, um, can you share with the audience what we're going to be talking about today? Yes, we are talking about um, what 2020, what the year 2020 has meant to AAPI communities, um, specifically AAPI women and non-binary folks. Um, It's been a year of pandemic, of 
uprisings over racial injustice, um, over economic injustice, gender, um, gender inequality, and all these other things. So um, we thought it was really important to have a conversation about this monumental year, um, not to mention the elections that just happened. And I'm really excited. Um, we will be speaking with Dr. Shireen Nasser, who um, uses she and her pronouns. Shireen is a Palestinian American school psychologist and researcher currently teaching at Cleveland State University. Um, her research interests um, focus um, specifically on Arab American youth and LGBTQ youth and how school environments um, shape their, their mental health and their experiences. Um, Shireen's also a new mom. She just gave birth to, to a daughter this year. So really excited to talk to Shireen. In a nutshell, how has 2020 been for you? Um, I think everyone will talk about 2020 as like a dumpster fire of a year. Uh, at first I was kind of reluctant, <laughs> reluctant to talk about it like that because I remember like Bush era, um, when we looked at it politically, like this is not the first time, um, we've seen racism rear its ugly head. Not the first time we've seen bad leadership around the time of crisis. Um, but for me, this year was particularly relevant because when I had a daughter and I was very excited um, about that, like light in my life. Um, but my mother also contracted breast cancer. My brother also needs a bone marrow transplant for something else on top of the political things that are happening um, and on top of the pandemic, which makes everything a little bit harder. And I think what's relevant as um, an AAPI for me as a Palestinian American is family is so important. Um, so for me, when we talk about family struggles, it's really salient to kind of everything that's going on because I I want to, I'm close to my family and family is important to me. Mm. How about you guys? Am I the only one? I don't think I'm the only one. I think 2020 has been a year of struggle for everybody. Yeah, Tessa, do you want to speak to that? <laughs> I don't know if I can, I can say it as eloquently as, as Shireen. Um, I resonated with a lot of what you said, but there's been a lot of grief and anger and yeah, just frustration and chaos, but I don't know, there's been silver linings and joy and unexpected, you know, things to celebrate. Um, I think my relationship with my family has developed in a different way, being far away from them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, making time for FaceTime calls that we weren't doing before, even though we, we could have been doing them all along. Um, and, you know, having conflict happen over those calls and <laughs> figuring out how to deal with that. Um, so it's been complicated, but it's been transformative as well. You know, I think I've, I've definitely developed more consciousness around, um, the issues that I was already thinking about and developed deeper relationships with, um, the communities that that I'm organizing with so transformative yeah it's like you said it was complicated but there's still moments of joy moments of great sadness um majority of the beginning months I didn't know what I was feeling um because everything was changing so drastically um and so quickly that my mind my body definitely my spirit like didn't have that time to catch up until a couple months later when I finally felt like I was in a spot where I could say yes I can live through this like I've changed my life enough from like the routines um from making like sacrifices on who I could see, who I wanted to um, be included in my like day-to-day -day life, knowing that I was emotionally exhausted. Um, but also like picking and choosing, like what does activism even look like in 2020 when we're not able to be physically together? Um, and, and going through that really, really, 
it's it's kind of like when you're going through something things bubble to the surface and and once they're resolved there's like this space left i felt like now approaching the end of the year i have carefully been like pruning things from my life um whether it's like the emotions of existential crisis <laughs> or dread um and really moving towards being resilient um and and finally having the space within me individually to adjust to a new normal right um and so it's been complicated like you are all saying so in in the media uh now and also just in everyday narratives that we hear it's the end of 2020 and people are like celebrating what they accomplished um during the quarantine you know i see pictures of people like oh i did this project and i did that project but i'm really not seeing this um conversation on what we grieved in 2020 it seems like the larger culture is focused on like we can get through this in in any means necessary but what have we grieved in 2020 what have our communities grieved about um that's also an important thing to to think about and slow down you know so i wanted to open it up to you both um like what have we grieved about in 2020 and how has that impacted you? I think for me personally, um, as I mentioned, like Palestinian Americans, like many API are very family oriented. And it has been hard to be pregnant in a year where I could not share that with my family. Um, I couldn't really even share some of it with my husband, like going to an ultrasound. Um, so there's something called an anatomy scan where you learn if, you know, if your baby's developing normally and it's potentially a place where you could get bad news. And I, um, because of COVID was not, I had to go into that alone and that was not fun and, um, couldn't take my phone to call my mom or anything like that. So it was, um, a moment that really stuck out to me as like a symbol of that kind of isolation that we've had to practice in order to be safe. But that being said, um, I know we're talking about what we were grieving and in our last question we talked about how it was complicated i think that um one of the things i've learned in that isolation is how to how to build inclusivity better um how to be a better um how to live my word better when i talk about inclusivity because there's been so many times where i've had to find creative ways to bring people into my world um that i just didn't bother with before mm. and then so in some ways that very isolation made me more connected to my family. Um, so, you know, for example, I couldn't necessarily have a baby shower, but my cousins who I would not have done with this with before all made a Zoom baby shower for a surprise Zoom baby shower. Um, and there were just moments like that where I was reminded that like, I took inclusivity or being included for granted. And I have people that I work with who might be physically unable to be in a, pla in a place normally, whether there's COVID or not COVID. And I could have done a better job using all of the technology available to us to make sure that they could be there um, to bridge the gap. Uh, and even in my organizing work, for example, Palestinians are spread all over the world because of the occupation. Um, and I work with an organization that helps bring people from a, the community that my parents are from together and keep them together. And a lot of that work would include uh, like the national board meeting, people having to fly to Houston or something like that to gather. And this year we happened to make it happen on Zoom, you know, made it work. And uh, the call, we actually ran a campaign um, fighting against uh, the inclusion of an asphalt plant in our town in a way that would have been really caustic to the people that live in that town. And we were able to do the whole thing, including organizing with people on the ground over the internet. <laughs> Um, and I, I don't know what that would have looked like pre-COVID if it would have had the same level of inclusivity using all this technology. 
Um, so I was very much and still am grieving some of the isolation, but I'm taking these lessons forward with me that I learned in that process. Because when you grieve, you find a way out of that. <laughs> yeah. Where was that campaign, Shireen? Um, so in my family, my family's from a town called Brazit. It's right outside of Ramallah um, uh, in, in the West Bank of Palestine. And they were building an asphalt plant and the asphalt plant would have been much closer to residential areas than would be um, recommended by any environmental organization, including local ones. And so we worked with Palestinians, both at the national level here in the US, but also on the ground in, um, in Palestine to put out surveys, educational materials, work with a legal team um, to keep that asphalt plant from being built. That's incredible. And it's, it was an international effort. And I think that, I mean, that's something we have learned to do as people in the Palestinian diaspora, people have been forced from our homeland is to stay connected. Um, and it sometimes it's, it's the same complicated situation as when we talk about COVID, right? It's, I've got family in Chile and Australia and Canada and all over the United States and everywhere I go, I have somewhere to stay because I have family but I have family in all those places because of an illegal occupation um, that's, you know, um, yeah. keeping us separated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen there's this quote that's been going around um, lately on social media about how a lot of people, at least in the U.S., are experiencing family separation for the first time, you know, not being able to spend the holidays together or to be, yeah, to be together in person and how that's such a common experience mm-hmm. in immigrant refugee communities in you know, communities impacted by incarceration. It's just like an everyday occurrence um, and it's never acknowledged or, you know, given that visibility. Yeah. So that just reminded me of that. Yeah. I mean, that's a perfect point. And I, I think I've taken for granted being able to even just hop on a plane when a lot of my family back in Palestine could never do that because they can't get the right visas or paperwork um, from Israel in order to do that. So it's forced separation in many ways. And um, yeah, it's complicated. I guess that'll be the word that we use this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just coin it. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first time that I felt like my passport isn't really worth much because <laughs> right, I can't really right. go anywhere. Nobody wants us. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, that was a huge um, conversation between my family and I when we realized we could no longer leave um, America. <laughs> um because we do have family in Canada, we do have family in India, we do have um, family all over. And what we've been talking about in this entire call is like family is so important and not being able to be there physically like took a toll. Um, it also made me think very deeply about my parents own immigration stories um and what it might have felt like feeling like the land that you live in is no longer safe right um and wanting to do nothing more than to just leave um and i can see how that thought process might have inspired them to um you know, make the decision to like leave their, leave their country, um, and make a new home. And, and so it was, it was heavy. Like my mom right now, um, her father is ill, uh, in India and like, you know, we can FaceTime, we can, um, definitely stay connected, but like, being physically present is so important in my own culture and maybe it is in in your cultures as well that like she's really struggling (laughs) you know because like with that physical presence it ties together like acts of service and acts of love and 
you know, feeling like you can be there for your parents finally and as an adult, you know, because they've done so much for you. Um, so all of that, like seeing that and seeing her go through that, um, I was really, really just empathetic towards what she was feeling. Um, can't imagine being in her shoes but yeah that's one thing that I've grieved is those that longing to be with people that you love in a moment of need and help and not being able to um, and the impact that it it has on your self-worth <laughs> as a child <laughs> of parents you know parent immigrant parents you know mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. yeah mm. yeah um i can go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say as you were talking i um was also thinking about I, I think i've just gotten into this habit of trying to turn everything into like a positive or like what is my lesson learned just <laughs> that's something i've been doing in 2020 <laughs> out of like need survival need um, but as I'm listening to you talk, I'm like, I also think that in those spaces, because you're absolutely right, I think um, within a PI community, like we feel that we feel towards our parents an obligation. Um, but I also have learned boundary better in the mm. space in between, um, in that forced isolation and in recreating connection, um, feel closer to my family in some ways than ever. And especially in like a healthier way as well. Mm. Um, and I think that that was another thing that came out of the necessity of recreating our connections. Um, and also just wanting to stop and acknowledge that like, even though we keep talking about how AAPI are really connected to their families and um, we miss that, I just also want to put a shout out to people who are not, who are in our communities yeah. who are not connected to their families for one reason or another, um, mm -hmm. and that our chosen families are just as important as yeah. complicated blood, <laughs> blood relationships. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that there's so much, um, and Balpreet, when you, when you mentioned resilience, um, it's just funny because I've been hearing that word over and over again, yeah. like over the past few weeks. And mm. I've just been thinking about the word a lot because, um, at the beginning of this year, I think I, I solely thought of resilience as like a good thing. And, um, I had an experience that just kind of made me reevaluate. Re like, I, I still think that there's a lot, like I, I see a lot of, you know, organizers and um, women of color and, and indigenous people that I really respect, you know, talk about resilience and talk about it as like something that they're really proud of and, you know, something that, um, they want to celebrate but at the same time it's like who are the communities that have to be resilient over and over again mm. right resilience comes from having to go through struggle and oppression and having to survive um and like there's some people that just don't don't really have to they don't have to be resilient so i don't know um yeah it's another i don't know there's it's a lot of like um multiple truths like existing at the same time so I guess I grieve like all of the people who have to be resilient this year <laughs> and um obviously like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor come to mind but just the, the sheer amount of death and trauma that um the world has faced and you know that's not being acknowledged um yeah so I don't know, those are some things that came to mind for me. And just speaking about like my experience this year as you know, a member of the Chinese diaspora. Yeah, I, I guess I, I grieve like, especially for children, um, you know, even, even if they're physically safe from harm, um, I just know how I would have reacted at the, at a young age if if this was the environment um, that I grew up in, and I did I grew up in an environment that was um, you know extremely um, 
white white dominated spaces and i i went through like the majority of my life having a lot of internalized racism and you know shame and pushing away like my heritage and my culture and yeah it's just been the past few years that i've really been able to unpack that so i just i think a lot about like the young the young people um mm. seeing what what Trump and other politicians have been saying yeah. and even going into this new era with, you know, Biden Harris, knowing that um, there's still kind of this cold war tension happening with China and that's not going to go away. And in some ways, like the administration might continue to stoke that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I know Shireen, you do a lot of work um, researching, you know, child child psychology mm -hmm. and, and how school environments um shape the sh shape their experiences so yeah i've just been like i've just been worried and worried about like what what it's been like for kids to go back to school um during a time where these attacks have been happening and a friend of mine you know just got screamed at on the rta last week um, so those, th yeah, those things are still happening mm. and yeah. I just have a lot of sadness <laughs> about, yeah. about the state of things. Um, even though there's, there's also lots of solidarity that's been really meaningful that I've seen. Yeah. I do want to just validate that thought and I'm going to get nerdy for just a second, if you guys don't mind, because Tessa, your fear or your worry for kids um, who might be coming into their identity and figuring out their racial identity and ethnic identity at this time, um, it is absolutely um, hard to do when the environment you're in doesn't allow you the space to be proud of who you are. Um, if your school environment's like that. So for like for example, we did study with uh, studies with Arab youth who, um, whose teachers have anti-Arab sentiments. And what we find is that when teachers have those racist sentiments um, or those biased sentiments, they pass it down to peers. And so all of a sudden now peers are also saying terrible things, doing terrible um, discriminatory actions and things like that. You also know that when the state um, or even at a federal level, there's that discrimination, it starts to trickle down. I explained yeah. it a little bit like a pond, right? Like if you have a dirty pond and fish are swimming in dirty water, that's going to affect them. And um, if they're in clean water, they're going to thrive better. And what I've learned is that through my own research is that when there's all this bias um, and all this racism and um, such in school buildings, it absolutely contaminates the way everybody treats each other. Mm. And it's something that you can't vaccinate for, right? Um, so COVID-19, we might be able to be like one day wake up and be like 90% of the population is vaccinated, we're good to go. Um, but there are going to be these reverberating effects over time that we'll have to contend with. And I think for me, when I think about um, maybe a hopeful thing is that we've learned this from past events, like with Arab youth after 9-11, and that it will be up, up to our API communities to push into schools and talk to kids and help them really understand like what to be, that they should be proud of their heritage. Um, and to inform others in the, that are responsible for leaderships in schools so that they aren't passing on those discriminatory, discriminatory habits um, to other peers, to the kids. Yeah, that was powerful. I think, I think what this makes me think of is like, there was a moment during the pandemic where the uprisings were happening the the pandemic was happening, the election was coming up, there was um, like civil unrest in my own home state uh, in India. And there was like just news coming in from all over the world that like, okay, now this country's on fire and like this problem is coming up. And now like kids are, you know, going back to school and we don't know what's going to happen. And I was just like, can we just get a break, please? Um, just, it was just like this like prayer that like instinctually just, you know, fluttered in my heart of like the 
people who are already so exhausted and most impacted by oppression, like thinking about like black trans folks, right? And like indigenous children, can they just please just get a break from everything that's going on and everything that's just compounding again and again and again and again. Um, and every day is just like a constant battle. <laughs> um, like which battle do we choose, um, right? Like yes, COVID, but also racial disparities in education, but also domestic violence um, because we're all quarantined together, but also like indigenous people haven't gotten even anything, right? To to battle COVID um, and like countries are going to war and like there's farmer strikes happening. Um, and so like, what do we do? It reminds me a little bit of what Tefso was saying about like it's unfair that resilient communities are the ones mm. have to continue to be resilient. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. I want to like in acknowledgement of that, I think that like I have been taking self care more seriously, um, and that my community in general has. Like even my parents are taking self care more seriously, and these are folks who grew up, you know, in five kids in one bedroom, you know. Um, uh, which is, you know, the start of a lot of our immigration stories. Mm. But I also um, want to just say that, like, as a Palestinian, I think sometimes we look these terrible things in the eye and, like, there is no alternative, right? Like, either the world drags you or you stand up and walk with it. And it sucks to have to be that person over and over and over again. Um, but actually, you can see behind me, there's something called a tablet. It's a kind of drum, Palestinian drum that we use for dancing. And people will take those to protest against the Israeli army and dance in front of, um, yeah. you know, play that drum and dance in front of the army. And uh, yeah, it sucks that they have to do that. Um, but it's also that our communities have had to do that for so long. Maybe we're good at it. <laughs> um, or maybe we're good. I, I don't think we're untouched by it. I don't mean to, um, I want to acknowledge that there's intergenerational trauma that touches every aspects of our communities. Um, and again, wish we wouldn't have to be that kind of resilient, but I think a lot of our communities have chosen to like stand up and walk instead of be dragged by a lot of these events. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one thing that's been giving me hope is that in spite of these challenges, in spite of these repeated traumas, in spite of we're still finding ways to live and we're mm -hmm. still finding ways to experience joy um, in like, deep meaningful ways right mm -hmm. the possibility of transformation and and hope is still there um like right now there are 12 million farmers across the across india that are um marching um into the capital right now and a lot of them are the elders of my community, right, who have been, they've been exploited for so long. Um, their labor has been um, rejected <laughs> by capitalism um, and they've been pushed into poverty and pushed into cycles of, of violence and harm um, because they can no longer do what they love, which is farm, right? And, now they're marching right in the middle of a pandemic in the middle of um so much uncertainty but you see the videos coming out of like Punjab right now and Delhi and you're like how are these people able to just be so fearless right um so I find myself latching on to those um moments of like inspiration and hope that like I think it says something about the human spirit and its capacity to survive and and thrive even in the most um, antagonistic circumstances, right? It does. It does say a lot about humanity. Mm. Um, and I've been seeing those videos as well. <laughs> yeah. I just hope, you know, there will, like, that they will get a break. <laughs> there will be some rest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after after this, you know, incredibly important action. 
Mm. But I also want to say that, like, you know, I hope that there's a rest too, but sometimes I wonder at what point do we create our own rest? Um, what does that look like? I think that that's something I'm just, I'm starting to like try to figure out because mm. maybe it's because my own personal family has been going through so much between my mom's breast cancer and my brother needing bone marrow transplant and like all this stuff that's been happening on top of the pandemic. Um, like it's just, it doesn't feel like it's going to stop, but I can't, but I can't keep going without resting. Um, and, and maybe that's a question for our, at a community level for us to address in these moments is like, what does making our own rest look like? Um, how do we recharge each other and support each other in recharging even when we can't lay down? Um, because yes, maybe we have a Biden administration next, but that's not going to mean very much. Um, you know, for yeah. many of us, we were struggling under these same things, no matter a Republican or Democratic president. Right. Um, and right. I, I don't know much about the situation in India, but I do know a lot of those communities have been struggling under def- different kinds of administrations as well. Yeah. So when we can't get a rest from outside, I think it's an important question for us to ask, how do we internally create recharging for ourselves, for our communities? Yeah. I think for, for the Punjabi Sikh community, it's always been like relying on our history Mm. for those models of rest um, and inspiration. So I'm rest you know, rest (laughs) that we consider in like the Western um, spaces is like, yeah, go take a nap. (laughs) And that's important for sure. But I'm thinking about rest as like, what makes your being feel at peace Mm -hmm. um, and satisfied and content in a moment? That is truly rest. Um, and so a lot of that question and inquiry, um, is informed by like, for my community, by our history, like staying true to our values, um, and, and finding ways to live those values, even in tough moments. Mm -hmm. Like right now there are elderly women who have taken every single possession they have. They're carrying it with them. And yet they've accepted. They're like, we're going to die in Delhi. We're going to die in Delhi. Like, as soon as the protests start, we're going to die. Like, we've come prepared for this. And still these women are invoking our, like, history and, like, providing free meals for everyone, no matter who they are on the road, right? Whether they support the protest, whether they don't, doesn't matter. Um, and for me, it, like looking at this from my comfortable bed in in like Ohio, I'm like that is their rest. They are they are feeding and nourishing the community, and they are at peace with that. That is what brings them peace. Right. And so it's just something that I'm carrying and thinking about right now. It's like, yeah, I have my comfortable bed and I can take a nap, but does that really make my spirit feel alive? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Should we ask the, the last question? <laughs> yeah, we can definitely do that. So how are our communities fundamentally fundamentally changed or transformed in 2020? a pretty broad question so you can approach it however you'd like it's it's under the assumption that there's no going back to the old Mm -hmm. right and so in your experiences it how has your community fundamentally changed both negatively or even in a positive way um in 2020 I was thinking about this question a lot when um, you sent them by email for us to take a look at. And it's actually really hard for me to come up with something. As I mentioned earlier, I live in a very spread out diaspora. Um, And while I've been really feeling the impact of COVID on my most connected relationships, my parents, my siblings, um, my closest cousins, 
a lot of my community, because we've been so spread out because of the occupation, feels the same. Um, I think, I mean, of course, there's like these little things like um, harder to visit. And actually, sometimes it's more positive. We're being more connected because now everyone knows how to use Zoom and Facebook <laughs> video and WhatsApp video and all this stuff that maybe we didn't really rely on before. We're learning to rely on them now. And because everybody's um, stuck at home doing the same thing or reaching out to different people and seeing more people um, via these technologies. But I also just, again, struggled answering this question because we, we have been like broken, not broken. We have been sh you know, sent to all the four corners of the world um, mm -hmm. because of the occupation. Um, yeah. And so in some ways it isn't much different for us. Mm. Yeah. I also think it's like, too early. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of folks in my community are like, yeah, things will go back to normal, <laughs> you know, but um, one thing from like a faith perspective that has shifted is, has been fundamentally changed is like our idea of what it means to be together as a faith community um because we're so focused on like being together physically for ceremonies rituals um important days right you during the pandemic you had a bunch of sick people who were like how do i connect to my community when i can no longer go to the place that connects me to them and you have um people who are already isolated in the community now have more opportunity to be connected um through the internet and through through that so we're really reimagining like what the sick community looks like virtually because we've always assumed it exists in person um, throughout like our entire history, <laughs> it's always been um, in person, right? And so that's one way that like the Sikh community has, I think is starting to change, is really having conversations around what does faith look like in a virtual space. Um, yeah. And I do wanna, I, I do, as you talk about like this, people who are sick, but I also want to say like, um, to broaden that actually shout out to my friend Meredith King, who Tessa knows, who always holds me accountable for my values. And especially the one on inclusivity. Um, when we, I used to run a book club and, um, you know, she'd always be like, can people get to your book club in a wheelchair? Can, you know, how far is it to walk to get there? And, um, just always making sure that I'm my best self when I'm doing those things. Um, but I always, I do think about her a lot in these times because, um, there are things I really want to carry forward forever. Um, mm -hmm. And that is including video for people who can't physically get to a space um, and providing transcripts for people or, for to, or even recordings for people to see it later yeah. so folks can see it on their own time and still be engaged and involved. Um, and I think that that um, is one of, like, as you were saying, one of the ways that our communities have been transformed. And I would say, uh, especially my, even my local community, yeah. um, people who are next door to me, that maybe yeah. I've never talked to before because they couldn't physically get somewhere can now be more engaged because they can do things on their own time in a way that makes sense for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really big shift from like a one size fits all to like, let's make sure things work for a lot more people. Right. Um, yeah. I, definitely carrying that forward. Um, it's one of the best parts of, of this newly emerging virtual world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What about you, Tessa? When I think about the question, it's really hard to answer because um, I know that like none of our communities are a monolith and, you know, politically there's definitely like all over the, like all over the board, right? <laughs> there's, mm -hmm. there's extreme conservative um, Chinese Americans <laughs> that are really interesting to me. And so I think people have changed in different ways. So I, I guess I think more about how I've fundamentally changed this year. And I, I think I've been grateful for like the questions that have been 
running through my mind that I wasn't thinking about, you know, maybe a year ago. Um, and disability justice is like one of those, one of those topics that I've really been like enlightened to, and just am eager to learn more about, um, because of the pandemic and because of the disabled people that I met, you know, online this year, um, and have developed relationships with, um, but yeah, just all of these questions, these big questions that um, we've been grappling with, you know, in OPAL conversations, um, questions about like, how do you, how do you address um, hate crimes or, or sexual violence without, you know, the, without the prison industrial complex? How do you address it with a non-carceral, non you know, abolitionist point of view? Like, that's a huge question. And I, I'm just getting more used to sitting with the questions and like continuing to revisit the questions rather than like wanting an answer right away. Cause that's just not how, that's not how it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I know that there's lots of people like me who have um, gone through this like enormous internal transformation and just kind of continuing to develop their consciousness and think about things in, in different ways. Um, so I don't know, I guess <laughs> I, I wish there were more, it was more widespread, but I know it's happening on some mm -hmm. level in so many different people. So mm -hmm. that's I something. Really, Tessa, I just want to say too, that I think with, um, I think the, at least my Palestine community that I'm connected to, um, this question of racial justice is even more in people's faces than ever before. Um, I, as, you know, I think we've been contending with it for a long time, but I know that um, even beyond the pandemic, as you're talking about consciousness, I'm feeling like there's more consciousness in my community um, about issues of racial justice, especially concerning the Black community and the issues around George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, and I'm really thankful for that because I feel like it's a conversation that could always... Um, in my community have been um, avoid, not necessarily avoided, but oh yeah, we know about it, but oh well. But I feel like there's more of a push for actual genuine um, engaging with the topic and engaging with the politics around it and action around it. Yeah. Yeah, and I echo that as well. I think this year is led to so many conversations that I thought were never going to be possible in my community mm -hmm. about why we are the way we are and what decisions we make and what role we play in the greater, um, not only just American culture, but internationally. Um, it really, it, it's unfortunate that it took um, the the unfair killings of so many like innocent people um in the black community this year to like have these conversations within my own community um and i'm also grateful that we're finally having them right um it's a long long time coming for sure and i, I think it's not it's not just the deaths because those have been happening like it's yeah. it's the response and it's, I think it's the fruit of like years and years of kind of under the radar organizing that's been happening. Um, and now you're, you know, you're seeing the really external um, uprising, like the outcome of, of all that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's something to be, to be grateful for. Um, because I, I, I don't know, I think this, this is a broad generalization, but I think a lot of AAPI communities aren't always good at like talking about uncomfortable topics. <laughs> so if if the conversations are, are opening up, that's that is a positive thing. Thank you for joining us on Dear World for our very first episode. Like Shireen said, 2020 has been complicated and many of us are still making sense of it or trying to. I hope that the stories and experiences shared today give you pause and something to think about about the complex and beautiful AAPI experience in the year of the pandemic. 
OPAL is a grassroots community organizing organization for social justice by elevating the voices, visibility, and leadership of AAPI women and non-binary trans folks in Ohio. We're a membership-based organization working to build the collective power for AAPIs and all marginalized people. And 2020 has been incredible for OPAL and our community. It's hard to believe that four years ago, OPAL was just an idea. And now we've blossomed into a political home for so many people, a space to grow, learn, and work together. This year, we've had to adapt to the pandemic and xenophobia. And at the same time, we've strengthened our commitment to dismantling anti-Blackness and paving the way for liberation for all. We've hired paid organizers for the first time and are growing while constantly trying to stay true to our progressive and intersectional feminist values. We made over 140,000 phone calls to AAPI voters in Ohio and had deep conversations about the important role that AAPIs can play in building communities and movements. Through OPAL, so many of us, including Tessa and I, are raising our consciousness and dreaming up a better world while empowering ourselves to make it a reality with the many gifts and talents that we all have. If you know someone or if you yourself have a story to share and would like to appear on Dear World, please get in touch with us via email or social media. You can reach us at dearworld at opawl.org or at, at, at the social media handle at Team OPAWL on Facebook and Instagram.